The Tom Woods Show, episode 1291. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, more and more of my listeners are ditching the traditional nine to five and working on their own terms from their laptops. There are many paths you can take to make the internet work for you. And I've written an ebook on precisely the ones I've used for myself. I'll show you how you can do the same thing. Download your free copy at pathstoincome.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. It's Black Friday. So get on over to libertyclassroom.com. You're going to get the best deal of the year on my master lifetime membership over there. It really is the history and economics they didn't teach you. It's an amazing product. It's going to make your life better. You're not going to feel like, well, I know I'm right, and yet when I get cornered by my coworkers, I don't really know how to defend myself half the time. Those days are over, my friends. Those days are over. So check it out at libertyclassroom.com. And uh, what else do I want to say? Oh, what are we doing today? In today's episode, remember, I'm out of town this week. I'm out of town the whole week. But, you know, the episodes, they just keep getting churned out because that's the kind of guy I am. Anyway, I am in New York. And so what I have done for this particular episode is I'm sharing with you my recent appearance on The Scott Horton Show. You all know Scott Horton, the great libertarian foreign policy expert. So he had me on his program not too long ago. And I was a bit frazzled because I was trying to get ready to go out of town for a week. So I was trying to do two weeks worth of work in one week. And then I was on the Scott Horton show and I was a little bit frazzled. But I think it ended up being a pretty good conversation. It started off being on World War One, and then we just talked about a variety of things. or We looked at World War One from a variety of different angles. And I hope that the result is entertaining for you. That's that's all I have to say. So here we go. Oh, well, by the way, uh, scotthorton.org is where you would go. You want to know more about Scott and listen to his show. scotthorton.org is where you want to go. Okay, now we're going to listen to it. Hey, Tom. Scott, great to talk to you. Hey, man. Uh, very good to talk to you too. Very happy to have you back on my show. It's been way too long. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so here's the big deal, man, um, is uh, yesterday was Armistice Day. And I guess, you know, when it falls on a Sunday, the government employees still get their uh, vacation day. So they're celebrating it two days this year. <laughs> so no government right. employees, like, say, for example, at the post office are doing their job today. The banks are all closed. Some of us are trying to take care of business. But no, anyway, it's Armistice Day, the celebration of the end of World War One. And I know that they renamed it Veterans Day in the 50s and all that because there were so many new veterans of so many new wars already. But um, I was thinking that, um, you know, World War One, they call it the Great War. They used to call it the Great War back before World War Two. And it really is uh, that big and important. And yet I am of the understanding that most people really don't understand very much about the war. You know, World War Two is so easy because it's America and England and our friend Joe Stalin against the evil fascist Italy and Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Good guys versus bad guys. Good guys win. That's pretty easy. You could teach it to a kid and they can understand it. But World War One is a lot more messy and complicated. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us a little bit of a background into the war itself first. And then we can talk about the end of it, which was more important than the actual waging of it, I guess. Oh, boy, it's been quite a while since I've I've done it. But sure, I can do my best. Just to help people wrap their heads around it a bit, I would just start by naming the countries that, let's say, eventually or at one time or another, wind up fighting together. So the, the key powers on the side of the Allies would be Britain, France, 
Russia, and Italy. Italy's kind of a fair-weather friend. The central powers being Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire. I mean, those are the primary powers that are engaged in the war. And when you try to, you're right, with World War II, it's not that difficult to trace out the events leading up to it. And you can create an easy narrative about, you know, German rearmament and the West's, uh, you know, lack of response because they start thinking maybe that Versailles Treaty was a little bit too harsh after all anyway, and et cetera. It's, it's very easy to come up with the narrative here. But with World War I, you have colonial rivalries and you have secret agreements between countries going back a very long time, decades and decades. You have resentments going back to, let's say, the Franco-Prussian War of 1871. There's a lot that's going on here. And so that's why you have a situation where one assassination, one political assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by a radical Serb nationalist can lead to such unbelievably uh, momentous consequences because it's you have a powder keg of rivalry to begin with, of an arms race. I mean, for example, the British. The British policy was that because obviously they're they're an island, they need to have a really, really powerful navy. So their military policy always was we have to make sure that we have a navy that is double the strength of anybody else. So in other words, we've got a navy that's like the navy of two other countries put together. So when the Germans begin a massive armament process, well, then that's going to naturally force the British to up their military investment because they have to stay at a level of two countries worth of a navy. So there's there's an arms race going on. There's colonial rivalries going on as Western imperialism is proceeding apace. And of course, when you have imperialism, you have rivalries within and sometimes conflicts brewing beneath the surface in these colonies. So it's just one thing after another. So the long and the short of it is the Germans wind up basically willing to say to Austria-Hungary, this is what's referred to as the blank check, you take whatever measures you think you need to against these nationalist Serbs, you know, one of whom just shot the heir to the throne, and we will back you. That's what's meant by the blank check. We'll back you in this. And this, of course, okay, the, the Austrians didn't need a further invitation. And they proceeded to make demands of the Serbs that the Serbs could in no way accept. I mean, it's in some ways, it, it actually recalls to me the demands that the U.S. made of Serbia in, you know, in 1999 or that NATO made of Serbia. That There's no way that the Serbs as sovereign people could accept. So anyway, the, what wound up happening is that this leads to a series of a cascading series of events because the Russians had long considered themselves the protectors of the Balkans and of a lot of these peoples. And the Russians have their own interests. The French are going to support the Russians. And the, the Russians are meanwhile telling the French, you can get Alsace-Lorraine, you can get revenge for some of the territory that you lost to Germany back in 1871. And then the British had had a secret agreement with the French, and it was just one thing after another. And then when the Germans, when the war actually begins and the Germans make their way into France via Belgium and they cross through neutral Belgium, well, the violation of Belgian neutrality becomes alleged justification for the British to get in. So as you can see, it's not a – it's a very messy story. It's not an easy story. But the one thing you can see from the story is that this has nothing – whatsoever to do with the United States, that this is one of the moments when you would say, I am so grateful 
that we have in effect seceded from Europe, that we don't have to worry about this crazy nonsense. It's great that our ancestors moved out of this place. Now we can enjoy peace over here. That's what most Americans thought at the time. And that's why it took such an unrelenting propaganda campaign to try to persuade them that it you know, several years later, that it is necessary for the United States to get into the war. They had to use the military draft. They had to have people haranguing you on street corners. They had to have propaganda movies because the good common sense of Americans in those days told them, whatever the hell this war is about, we have no stake in it. So the big key to the American entry into the war, I think a lot of people think it's the Lusitania, but really that was a couple of years earlier and right. that failed to do the trick. It was the Zimmerman telegram. Was that as ridiculous of a thing as it seems like to me, especially yeah, in this era so. of fake excuses for starting wars? Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally fake. Because yeah, you're right. The, the Lusitania was 1915 and no doubt there were people who thought that that justified war, but it didn't. It didn't lead to the war. 1917 is when it happens. And there are several contributing factors to it. I mean, there were, for example, there was the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare on the part of the Germans. And that was bound to lead to American casualties, particularly because Woodrow Wilson refused to give common sense advice. Listen, it's wartime. So don't travel aboard an armed belligerent merchant ship carrying weapons of war through a war zone because you might get killed. I mean, it would be like in, it would be like people thinking that they were just going to walk right down the middle of the Western Front or something. I mean, who in his right mind would do this and what government would – like the Scandinavian countries, I'm fairly certain, told their citizens, look, don't for, – for heaven's sake, don't get on ships that are going to get you shot at. You know, they, I'm pretty sure during the Russo-Japanese War, that was the position the Scandinavian countries took. If you are a Scandinavian, you know, you're Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and you're on one of these ships and uh, you get killed in the middle of that war, that's on you. We're not going to avenge your death because you're an idiot. But Wilson wouldn't do that. So that was one thing. But certainly another one was this Zimmerman telegram in which it was discovered that there had been communication between the Germans and, of all people, the Mexicans. And the argument there was the Germans were saying that if hostilities should break out between us and the United States, if, then we would help you to win back some of the territory that those greedy Yankees took from you all those years ago. And so this was, of course, trotted out as a great outrage. But to me, the key word there is if, if, there, are, if there are hostilities, which there weren't at that time, and if you were seriously committed to avoiding war, you would not have let, you know, obviously a diplomatic faux pas like that lead to all out war. I mean, seriously. I mean, come on. And the Germans are going to they can't even sail out of their own ports at this point. They can't attack England, but they're going to come to Mexico and help invade Arizona. Yeah, right. If the Germans had the naval power to do that, they would have had the naval power to get enough food for themselves, which they couldn't do. Yeah, seriously. And, you know, I don't know if any of them had ever looked at a map or if any Americans had seen one, but the American Southwest, it's pretty big. It was pretty big back when they stole the northern half of Mexico in order to maybe the northern two thirds of Mexico in order to make it the American Southwest in the first place. There's no taking that back. Right, of course, the whole I mean, thing is on. wildly implausible. And if Wilson can get away with making all kinds of threats constantly, you know, if the Germans continue their policy, they will have to, you know, if he can do that so the Germans can't say, well, 
all right, how about if you continue being belligerent toward us, then we're going to do it. I mean, right. that's what happens in war. You know, you, you talk trash to each other. Yeah. Uh, but still, obviously, no kind of credible threat there. But that was good enough for the declaration of war. And then so now, look, the way I have the narrative here, Tom, it's all very simple. And everything negative that has ever happened or positive for that matter, but really all the bad stuff that has ever happened since then in the world is all Woodrow Wilson's fault for this. He said he wanted peace without victory, meaning we're not trying to conquer Europe and make it a new American colony or anything like that. We're over there in a selfless manner trying to bring peace and we're going to do it in a way where everybody is so fair to each other that we avoid this situation where this happens again. And yet, right at the time that he was doing that, you actually had a peace without victory. You actually had all sides were just completely out of gas, out of soldiers, out of ammo, out of everything. And it was really cold outside. And it had been four years of fighting and millions of casualties all around. And everybody had just about had it. And so that if America had stayed out, the Kerensky government in Russia probably would have stood and the Russian army would have been there to protect the, the interim government there, the revolutionary government from the communists in, for the October Revolution. And you would not have had a situation where the British and the French were able to strip Germany of all their territories and make all these insane reparations demands. And for that matter, you wouldn't have had the British and the French carving up all the former Ottoman Empire in the Middle East and creating Israel and all these problems that the United States has been dealing with since the end of World War II. And it's all just simple as that. I don't know what would have happened instead, but it wouldn't have been Lenin and Stalin, and it wouldn't have been Adolf Hitler, and it wouldn't have been the Second World War, and therefore no Bush family fortune, no Cold War, no American empire either. Not like this anyway. But maybe that's just nonsense, and I like it because it sounds right, and maybe, I don't know, something else. I think there's plenty to that. And there's a really good book that kind of lays out specifically exactly the kinds of consequences that you're uh, speculating about here. And that's Jim Powell's book called Wilson's War, published, I think, all the way back in 2005. But yeah, Wilson's it really War is excellent. Yeah, yeah it, it really does summarize all these different consequences. And it reminds us of this, the Ron Paul point about unintended consequences. I mean, we get these conservatives who tell us all day long that domestic policy has unintended consequences. So if you have milk subsidies, blah, 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 blah. Okay, I get that conservatives are really good on milk subsidies, but there are unintended consequences. You know, if, if that has unintended consequences, why wouldn't this, you know, why wouldn't World War I have unintended consequences? Right? right. They might be consequences even more momentous than milk subsidies. Well, and it's, you know, really is the answer to, oh, yeah, well, what about Hitler, which is always the go-to for opponents of the American empire. That without the American empire, Hitler would rise in Germany and would conquer the entire planet and then, you know, eventually North America too or – Something like that. But it's the obvious response to what about Hitler is that Woodrow Wilson should have never given birth to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a T-shirt that for a while was fashionable among conservatives. And it said it says on the front, war never solved anything. And then it says, except slavery, fascism, blah, blah, blah. So fascism, I thought, OK, it was war that created fascism. We wouldn't have had this problem. Uh, there wouldn't nearly have been the problem that uh, Europe faced if it hadn't been for Wilson basically tipping the scales in one direction in that war and basically preventing the possibility of a genuine negotiated peace. That's where that comes out. of. And not to mention, 
the very model of fascism. I mean, look at the way fascism looks at how society should run. It's the idea that we don't want to I mean, – the reason they don't care about democracy is that their idea is that democracy is a bunch of competing groups trying to each grab hold of the center of power. We need one will representing the interests of the nation as a whole setting domestic policy. And, of course, that's the wartime model. We, we can't have a bunch of people debating about the war. We have one will carrying through the war. And then during the war, we don't want regional differences. We want to encourage one single unified national culture. So, again, in peacetime, that's what we want. We don't want regional culture. We want one single German nationalism. So it takes the wartime model and it applies it. To peacetime, it says that just as in war, where the private interest had to give way to the so-called public interest, that's the way we ought to organize society even in peacetime. So the, the very model of fascism takes its inspiration from war. So it is unbelievably rich even for conservatives to walk around with an idiotic shirt like that. Mm -hmm. It was like I was saying on your show the other day about Star Wars, about how that's a theme throughout there is there's no time to discuss this in committee. You know, I'm not a committee. Well, and you know, in other words, it's an emergency. And so the captain has to go ahead and take charge. And that's the story of Han Solo on his ship. But it's also the story of the emperor cleansing the galaxy of the separatists and all that, too. You know? Yeah, it's so fun. With, with all this stuff, it's always everything's always in a, every big issue is always an emergency. We don't have time to listen to your your objections. And uh, you people are too stupid. The experts will figure everything out. And then years later, we're totally vindicated. And then they act as if no one could have predicted blah, blah, blah. I mean, and you can come up with like just even something as compared to World War I mundane as bailing out AIG after the financial crisis of 2008. Mm -hmm. Well, there were people who said you could easily let AIG go bankrupt. This will have no effect whatsoever. Oh, no, 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 Listen, we don't have time to listen. This is a major emergency. Right. And then it turned out when they looked into it, it turned out, yeah, look, it's only about like a dozen firms that were really exposed to AIG. And the amount of their exposure is so trivial, it would just amount to like a year's worth of executive bonuses foregone. I think they could survive it. And then the former CEO of AIG says, you know what, in retrospect, we probably should have just let us go bankrupt. So in other <laughs> words, we were right all along. And as usual, up. Oh, no time. We can't think about the consequences. Right. And they, they, it's like they can only think of – and you don't know if it's – are they really dumb or do they just have their own sinister motives and that's why they can't really allow us to have any input because is it really the case that they really can only think about one thing at a time? Like let's go smash the Germans. Yeah. There, there might not be – there will be no consequences from this. Well, let's, you know, let's just do that. It reminds me of that old uh, G. Edward Griffin interview with Norman Dodd, who was the investigator for that congressional committee. Yeah. He talked about the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace being founded in 1908 on the question, is there any means more effective than war, assuming you wish to alter the life of an entire people? And how then they studied it for a year with all this money and professors and smart people and study groups and whatever. And they came back and they said, nope, that's pretty much the best way to do it <laughs> is to have a war. And then you can regiment all kinds of things in the name of the emergency You can do all, all kinds of things, which, of course, you know, leads us to the question of uh, Woodrow Wilson's wartime administration. Because it was really a great leap forward in terms of New Deal policies before the New Deal, wasn't it? Well, sir, I mean, certainly there's a nationalization of, you know, railroads and a heck of a lot else. And basically a kind of economic planning. And the Federal Reserve is coming into its own at this time as well. 
So that's what makes it particularly interesting to note what Rothbard points out. Murray Rothbard has a really great essay on World War I and the intellectuals. And uh, maybe you've read it. It's really great because what he does is he goes back and, and it's reads. Called, it's called War as Fulfillment. Yes. Power and the Intellectuals. Yeah, it's an amazing essay because what he's done is he's gone back and looked at really the premier periodical of the progressive era, even though it was developed only late in the progressive era, the New Republic magazine, which, as Bill Kaufman would say, has has always been an enemy of the old republic, the <laughs> yeah. new republic. And was a J.P. Morgan orbit project in the first place. I and think Rothbard you, says that, too. And that sounds like this kind of thing Rothbard would have dug out as well. But you read these people and, yeah, they – They'll say the Germans are in the wrong and, and we really got to go smash them. But what really seems to float their boat is that while we're smashing them, this is such a golden opportunity to wean Americans away from their primitive attachment to the idea of private property and private life and try and get them thinking more in terms of, again, subordinating the private good to the public good and getting them to understand that we're going to need the state to exercise more authority over resource allocation. This is our opportunity to plan. This is our opportunity to be technocrats and to exercise power in Hamiltonian fashion and move away from the old dumb superstitions of earlier America. That was the way they thought. I'm not making that up. That is the way they thought. So that's a big deal. Right. Hey, and it goes to, you know, kind of a a very modern question, too. I had Stephen Walt on the show last week, and he has this new book, The Hell of Good Intentions. And not the hell with good intentions, but the hell of good intentions. Yeah. Um, But And, and, you know, Stephen Walt is the realist school guy, and he's from Harvard University. And so he's a very polite gentleman and all that kind of stuff, which is fair is fair. And and I'm not saying that he's anything but completely honest in his take. But his take comes from his perspective as part of faculty of a university where they discuss stuff like this in kind of a very gentlemanly and scholarly way, I guess, this kind of thing. But in his entire take on the, I mean, what he's arguing in the book is that there is a severe difference of opinion of whether we should use American might to help people all over the world into creating this wonderful new liberal order of Uh, benevolence and selflessness, or whether we should have kind of a more hard-nosed national interest kind of a point of view. And I even, you know, was asking him in the interview, like, hey, I mean, it sounds like maybe there's some question begging going on there that every interventionist always only just means well. And there, none of this is cynical. None of this is a put on or an excuse for certain groups to take advantage for their own interests, which is funny because, you know, he wrote the book on the Israel lobby and all their avarice in America, all the stuff they get away with for their interests, which doesn't have much to do with spreading democracy, does it? But so anyways, yeah, his take was like, yeah, no, this is all just a difference of opinion. There are interventionists who think that if you are moral and caring, then you must intervene everywhere to help people. And then there are other people who are a little bit more realistic about, you know, whatever. Anyway, so now back to World War One, you have JP Morgan, who made a bunch of loans to the British so they could buy a bunch of guns uh, from JP Morgan, his other companies, the gun manufacturers. And then you have 
this entire kind of neoliberal, like center left ideology of do gooderness and militarism that you're talking about that JP Morgan was bankrolling, including the flagship publication, the new Republic and fanning all of these flames. And, you know, of course the Morgan group always had a tremendous interest in the Woodrow Wilson government in the first place and all of that. And so I wonder, I guess, first of all, maybe I'm begging the question here. Do you think that JP Morgan's interest in those loans and those arms sales to England had a lot to do with Woodrow Wilson's policy? And then secondly, does that mean that the new Republic was always just a put on for arms manufacturers and bankers and securing their profits at our expense or I mean, I guess it's always kind of both, right? They they found some a lot of intellectuals to bankroll, though, to get their same dirty work done, it seems like. Well, that is really the question that we even ask ourselves today. What I will say is that Thomas W. Lamont, who was in the Morgan mm-hmm. orbit, said, uh, look, we were never neutral. I mean, w- Wilson, at the beginning of the war, said Americans should be neutral in thought, word, and deed. But he said, we were never neutral. We didn't know how to be. We poured everything we could into the side of the Allies. And it is true that the, they had a huge amount of outstanding loans to the Allies. And obviously, if the Allies lose, the chance of collecting on those loans is much lower. So I don't think it's conspiratorial or – I mean, it's just common sense that obviously – I mean, imagine if you as an individual lent money to two people who are in a fight to the death. Well, you're probably going to hope that if only one of them survives, you know, it'll be the guy who owes you the dough, right? So, I mean, it's just common sense. But exactly how that translates into Wilson's decision to intervene, that's the part that's never really been made clear to me. And I think plus he was such a dour Presbyterian I, – I, I'm not trying to criticize Presbyterians, but he was like the worst kind of caricature of a Presbyterian moralist that I, I just don't think he would think that way. He would think that he was acting out of pure righteousness. Mm. Well, But they're just as dangerous. Yeah. Those people are just as dangerous, if, if not more. In fact, there's a guy named Richard Gamble who teaches now at Hillsdale College. And Richard has a book called The War for Righteousness. And what he did in that war was he went and looked at what so-called progressive social gospel Christians were saying about the war. And you would think – based on the way, you know, everything you learned in third grade, that they probably believed in peace because they were Christians and whatever. They were the most bloodthirsty people imaginable. They were drawing analogies between Christ and the American soldier. We see that on bumper stickers even today. And between the Germans and Satan. Now, if the Germans are Satan, you can't possibly have a negotiated peace that's sensible. You can't. How would you, are you going to sit down and negotiate with Satan? So these people, I mean, in a way, I almost wish it was just venal people out for a buck because they would understand, okay, a complete unconditional surrender means we're never, you know, we're not going to get as much money as if the defeated power, you know, let's say is able to keep something and, and survive. Whereas the moralist, the, the person who can't say, look, this is a finite limited question. It's a battle between two competing interests and one of them wins and one of them loses and let's hash it all out. They cannot think that way. And so you're, the results are going to be very bad. Yeah. Well, and we do see this all the time too. I mean, I remember this was a huge part of the debate about Iraq was, are we going to be amoral and just worry about what's good for America? Are we going to do the right thing 
even in, you know, an altruistic way, a self-sacrificial way, because you know what? You're right, Tom Woods. It's not in America's interest to attack Iraq, but that's why it's so important that we do it because it's the right thing to do. You know, that was the way that they spun it. The morality-based foreign policy versus the mean, old, heartless realists who would rather stay out. And so. it's it's such a it's such an irritating way to to put it because then the the whole discussion of foreign policy as with so many political discussions gets bogged down in two very unattractive options either you're going to be an idealist wilsonian or you're going to be a hard-headed realist like theodore roosevelt <laughs> yeah <laughs> those are my choices that's a pretty wow. good three by five index card yeah. allowable yeah. opinion right there right yeah uh, yeah, no, that's definitely, uh, it seems to be the way that it shakes out. And of course, you know, Wilson to this day is known as this great idealist. I remember, um, uh, I actually have a book of Wilson's letters and it was one of those things at this book fair back oh, when I was a kid, I guess a, a teenager, I put my hand on this book, right? As this lady was also trying to get it, but I got to it first and then Good she and her friend, and you could tell they're kind of liberal Democrat, Bill Clinton types or whatever. And then they had this conversation about how sad they were that they didn't get the book. And then the one says to the other, oh, Woodrow Wilson, you know, he was such a great idealist. You know, and it's always just that daydream of like, what if, you know, just a regular person like us had total power to remake the world, to make it nice, <laughs> you know, and this kind of thing. Like, that's oh. basically... Like when Hillary Clinton said, don't call me a liberal because the word liberty is still in there with the root word. And I don't like that at all. Call me a progressive because I've got a plan for remaking everything. And there's no limit to what I want to do for you. You know? So yeah. Yeah. He makes yeah, a great you. founding father for you. the modern American Democrats, I think. Yeah. 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 For sure. All right. Well, now I kind of went over with my, uh, my little old narrative there, but, um, I'm sure I missed some. Is there some good context that you could add to the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party in Germany? And obviously part of that was in reaction to the communists who were also Woodrow Wilson's children in the Soviet Union. But, uh, well, you know, yeah, I would hate I mean, for people to not really have a, a very good taste for just how much of America's fault that was. Well, uh, well, first of all, it's the first, it's not a coincidence that the first time that Hitler really makes an attempt to seize power is right around the time of the German hyperinflation. Now, why was there a German hyperinflation? Would that hyperinflation have just occurred if there had been no U.S. intervention, if there had been no Treaty of Versailles? Almost certainly not. It was that the Germans were in a position where they, you know, they had to make uh, enormous reparations. They were even being made to pay the old age pensions of all the soldiers that they fought against. It was just an impossible sum. And so after a while, they just – they were not making the payments, and the French then occupy the Ruhr Valley, and the Germans basically told their people to go on a patriotic strike and, and refuse to work under those conditions. So, okay, who's going to pay them? Where are they going to get their pay from if they're not working? Well, don't worry. we got the printing press. And so the hyperinflation comes about as a direct result of the financial – pickle that the Germans were put in, there's no way there would have been enough power to put them in that position. And so there you see, now again, obviously Hitler's not successful in 1923 and four, but well, he's on the map, that's for darn sure. But secondly, the fact that he's able to exploit that Treaty of Versailles 
Remember the context of the Treaty of Versailles, by the way. Woodrow Wilson had been preening about since early 1918, making clear that any peace settlement he was part of was going to be far better than those those self-seeking peace settlements that these stupid Europeans would probably enter into if they weren't overseen by Woodrow Wilson. Now, by the way, the Congress of Vienna, which ended the Napoleonic Wars, more or less ushered in 100 years of European peace with some exceptions here and there. So it was a, a bit much to take for Wilson to be lecturing the Europeans like they don't know diplomacy like he does. I mean, after all, he's a Princeton professor. So Wilson then uh, said, I am going to propose, and he laid out in his speech what became known as the 14 points. We're going to make sure that we have an impartial settlement. We're going to have a peace without victory. That is to say, the victors are not just going to go in and swoop down and grab the spoils, but we're going to try to be impartial in the way we administer competing colonial claims in dealing with um, territorial adjustments and populations. We're going to be impartial. And then when it turned out that, no, actually, only the Germans would have their colonies taken away and only the Germans would have to disarm and only the Germans would have the principle of self-determination mocked then, yeah, then somebody like Hitler could go around and say, uh, look, if you want to be a self-respecting German, you cannot possibly sit back and accept a regime that's going to quietly go along with these humiliating peace terms. Now, again, surely the United States' involvement, I mean, the United States was the industrial power of the world at that time. The involvement of the United States and the seeming infinite number of troops that could eventually be brought over at a time when the Germans are collapsing, makes it decisive. It makes the American intervention and therefore this harsh, punitive peace absolutely decisive. And it's that peace that Hitler really makes his career opposing. And remember, the Germans by 1918, as 1918 is going on, they are having to resort to, to getting younger people in the army or, conversely, much older people in the army you have Ludendorff saying that probably only 30% of his divisions are reliable, and a huge number of them are just simply unreliable. They, they could not be counted on in any serious confrontation. Well, with the German forces degraded that badly and this seemingly unstoppable supply of fresh American recruits, well, it's it looks pretty hopeless. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no chance for a stalemate there. So the point is that that is what pushes the scale. And that's what makes it possible to impose that kind of peace that Hitler then uses to appeal to the natural patriotism of Germans and makes his career. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of real ironies there, too, is certainly from their point of view, uh, as you say, they were overmatched. Better quit now than later after it's just worse, right? Like they could see the writing was on the wall, full stop, no, no arguing about it. And yet the British and French and Americans did not have troops on German soil. They were still fighting on French soil, not very far into it, but, and so it was an armistice, right? It wasn't a surrender or, you know, or, or I guess it somewhat was, but the German people, I guess, were told that it wasn't, that it was basically a timeout, that everyone was sort of calling it quits where they were. And then all of a sudden it was as though they'd been completely defeated and conquered and they were treated as though they'd been completely defeated and conquered when that was news to them, you know, because it never had gotten that far. And then on top of that was the post-war blockade where, and you know, Andrew Coburn 
had this great thing about the Iranian sanctions in Harper's once where he told the story of the post-World War I blockade and how the British bureaucracy enforcing the blockade on the Germans was just being completely perfected and implemented right at the end of the war. And so, hey, it was a government program. They wanted to keep it going. And so they kept it going. And so, you know, continue to starve millions of Germans. And I can't remember my footnote on this anymore, but I actually just learned this relatively recently that many of the most influential Nazi officials, uh, you know, later in the Nazi party had suffered greatly, you know, specifically under that uh, starvation program a generation before. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was a huge part of that, whereas just they hadn't quite all the way really been defeated and yet they were just absolutely had their nose rubbed in it to the nth degree so yeah, and all their kept, territory stripped away and all this stuff they, and, and and as you say they kept that hunger blockade in effect after november 11th right yeah for months, for months right or half a year or something yeah and yeah. you know that uh, i mean obviously the germans are not going to be able to restart the war so they're just sitting there i mean that is just pure spite and i mean just revenge i mean woodrow wilson apparently objected to this but a lot of good that did the world i mean it, yeah i know he thought that he would be able to pull one over on the european diplomats but quite the opposite occurred yeah and then there's something that in jim powell's book wilson's war where he talks about how wilson he's so high-minded you see that he refused to accept surrender from any of the actual guilty German militarists. And instead, he insisted they step aside and allow this democratic government to take its place and then insist that that new democratic government be the ones to sign the treaty and accept the surrender. And so they were the ones who got all the blame. And then, as you said, Hitler made his career on that. As Jim Powell says, he began virtually every speech denouncing, quote, the traitors of 1918, the Germans who would dare to have gone along with that. And it was not the guilty who'd caused the war at all. But the ones who Wilson had insisted be the ones to accept the surrender and were therefore completely delegitimized, right? Like when the CIA backs your Iranian student group, it kind of hurts more than it helps. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, let me just make one more quick point. You notice that on what we used to call Armistice Day, what you get always from the politicians are platitudes with no context. We're just speaking about abstract people who just died. Like we know they died in war, so they're at least that specific. But we don't get anything about politicians who maybe caused their deaths in ways that were avoidable, like wars that shouldn't have been fought. Or You never really get a, a, a case of real self-examination or anything. It's always, let's honor our fallen troops and they just leave it they just leave it at that but and then if you complain and you say but wait a minute these wars they fought in were horrible then you get criticized and condemned because you're not respecting the troops that's a really good racket they have going you know as soon as you actually start to point the fingers at why are these people under the ground well then you're not being respectful right i mean come on yeah it is and it although i think that's really wearing thin what's really funny about that to me is you know and i'm not that old but I remember a time where it was perfectly acceptable to say, you know what, the domino theory actually was wrong. 
I mean, once one domino fell, the rest of them didn't fall. Thailand didn't go commie. It, you know, right. it was a, you know, and um, so yeah, geez, it was a lot of well-intentioned people prosecuted some pretty brutal policies based on a theory that it was absolutely necessary. And really that was a mistaken view and that, you know what? We're all grown-ups here, right? It's okay to talk about that. Like, don't take it too far and start questioning whether we need a Pentagon at all or anything like that. But, you know, but now, no, <laughs> right? It used, there was a time, I don't know, early 90s or whatever. I could hear conversations like that in polite company more often. Whereas now, as you're saying, oh, no, you can't question the policy in Afghanistan or you're going to hurt the feelings of some guy I don't know, but who I imagine would be mad if he heard you say that because he served there, you know? Yeah. And I think the opposite really is true. Yeah. There are some people who would feel offended, but I get told so many times by so many veterans that actually a lot of times behind closed doors, they have nothing but contempt for the people who sent them into those places where they went. And they're much more receptive to people who are critical of this stuff than we're led to believe. Right. You know what? Everybody should read Catch-22 in high school. If that's the good war, then we have a real problem, I think, you know? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I re- geez, I remember that. Uh, but gosh, it's been I mean, that ought to be a real years. inoculation from ever having to believe in these guys at all, you know? Yeah, yeah. Reading about yeah, Captain Cathcart and all these, Colonel Cathcart, was it? Yeah, anyway. Um. All right. Well, listen, man, I'll stop wasting your afternoon here, Tom, but I like talking with you. Thanks for doing the show. I'm very glad to do it, Scott. Thanks. All right, folks, that's going to do it for another week of the Tom Woods Show. Head over to libertyclassroom.com for our Black Friday special. Grab your foreign language course at tomwoods.com slash rocket, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.